hobby for procrastination, and that is to um, rifle through old seminary papers I wrote and see either how intelligent my thoughts were, surprisingly, or mostly how bad they were. And so this week, uh, also in preparation for this sermon, I came across an old paper and an old assignment, and some of you might have done this assignment. Uh, and the assignment was to go on a technology, a communication technology fast for a week. And you know, this was this was only about five years ago, um, or I guess more than seven years ago. But uh, maybe it'd be even harder now. But but I, I, I waxed poetic in this paper about how how disciplined I am and how uh, not hard it would be to disconnect, to put away email, to put away the phone, um, to only be in the moment and to be present. How much room I'd have for prayer, how much, how mindful I'd be. And then as the paper goes on, it starts to unravel a little bit. And uh, on that trip, we, we traveled to see my in-laws who at the time were in Indiana. I talk in there about how we, we get in our seats and this before we had kids of our own. And in front of us um, on the plane were these kids, or were small kids, I think twins, babies, screaming their heads off when the plane kind of failed to pressurize properly. And, and all I wanted were earbuds. All I wanted was something that was not there. Um, I'd like to say that I, I, because of my newfound discipline, was thrown into service and compassion for these people, but that simply wasn't, I couldn't even, I couldn't even pretend in my paper that, that that was the case. So even then, there's this, there's this kind of hook and this kind of allure towards technology that I'm probably sad to say that would be much, much worse. For, for as much as I've grown and as much as being a parent has probably made me more compassionate and more uh, willing to serve, uh, the, these things can, can get their hooks in you, right? And so this isn't a sermon about, about throwing away your phones. We're not going to have like a you know, water tank to put your phones in downstairs <laughs> or anything. But I want to consider today how, how technology plays into our calling as we conclude this series on calling. It might sound really weird or hard to connect, um, really kind of anachronistic to try to pull this stuff out of Genesis, <laughs> especially out of a story about, about brothers, about Cain and Abel. But let me define my terms a little bit. When I say technology, what I'm talking about is a tool. What I'm talking about is a technique that we used to achieve something. Notice that even those, the, the word technique has that same prefix as technology. It, it, it's a Greek word for art or craft or trade. Uh, there's another uh, Greek word similar to it, technon, that is a carpenter or a craftsperson. You can start to see where this kind of comes in, technology and our calling, our work in the world, our lives with each other. We've established through this series, rooted in the story of creation, and then running straight through the corruption in the garden, that our creative calling in the world is, is linked directly 
with our relationship with our Creator, the God of creation's identity and action, the very God whose words make worlds. He spoke and it became, and then he said it was good. The God who makes and the God who rests and the God who has great satisfaction to form us and to call us his image. And we might be icons of him in the world. That means when people look at us, that they hopefully can see through us to see this creator. It means that we're, in fact, most ourselves, we're most human when we're living into this calling. It's something that's only fully possible when in our brokenness we have a relationship with Jesus who is truly God and truly human, who bridges that gap and heals us and equips us to be icons in this world, made into his image, into his redeeming and reconciling work. That work comes through and in our work. That means whatever type of work that is, that's schoolwork, that's, that's caring for kids, that's serving others, that's advocating for people, that's the intricacy of working with clients. You know, every time you have a client that you're trying to get right and, and satisfy, you have a chance to be a reconciling presence. This is working for justice in small ways through including people who are usually marginalized or caring for creation by, by gentle practices or consumption. So it's this kind of this kind of conception of our work and our calling that doesn't, doesn't really leave any possibility for work out, or hardly any. It also doesn't really elevate work, like one kind of work, that much higher than another kind of work. I think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who, who said, who talked about this calling and said, if a person is called to be a street sweeper, he or she should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted, or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. She or he should sweep streets so well that the host of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did their job well. We're not, we're not able to do this work only in ideal circumstances. The sermon last week we talked about and we're able to do this work in the exact place we are. There's no then and there's no there, there's here and there's now, where we get to experience our lives, even sometimes in really uncomfortable places, that we're called to live as blues singers, remember, bridging our singing and our suffering, or the suffering in our world, as resident aliens, citizens of heaven but residents here, or as a creative minority, experiencing, contributing to transformation through vulnerability. But then we get to today's story that Gary read for us. And the Genesis story seems to take a sharp turn from the garden. Adam and Eve are cast east of Eden and set to doing the hard work of tilling the ground that doesn't want to produce. That was what the curse was. We weren't cursed, the ground was cursed. We can infer that they'll need some tools for this stubborn, thorny ground. They'll need technology. They'll need technique. Perhaps they'll even specialize in 
divvy up tasks. So then we flash forward to our, our passage today. Just one generation removed, we find their sons, Cain and Abel, doing different jobs. One, the work of a shepherd, Abel the herdsman, and one, the work of a farmer, Cain, the worker of the fertile earth. Keep in mind that, that word in there, the fertile earth is Adamah. That's, that's exactly where his dad came from. The story that proceeds is a really tragic story. We know, most of us know this story. We associate it with these brothers. Jealousy, fratricide, there's that ironic cover-up in there of, I don't know where he is, am I my brother's keeper? Kind of send chills up your spine. But let's consider a key difference in these brothers and the ways they use their tools to cultivate and to fulfill their callings. Maybe Cain's frustration with the Lord's seemingly seeming unwillingness to accept his offering is because it came so hard. What he produced and presented before the Lord came so hard and the Lord would not accept it. After all, Cain's job as a farmer in this cursed world directly butts heads with that curse. We've all had jobs and we've all had seasons where it seems like all we face is resistance. All we're tilling is like concrete ground. I find myself, even in the, the summertime, sometimes humming a line from the Christmas carol under my breath as a prayer. And we'll, we'll sing it in a few months that says, no more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That's joy to the world. And that's talking about this curse, and that's, that's rejoicing in the advent of a king who will reverse that curse. If anyone knew the curse, it was Cain. And as far as tools go, I don't think he had a whole lot at his disposal. I don't think there were John Deere tractors available. Or even something as arcane as what we use in the side yard in our garden, a broad fork. No, I don't even think Cain had that to break up the ground. Cain's life knew this curse up close. It's this frustration that then spins into terrible violence. Those thorns not only tore up his hands, but they tore up his family. They tore up his life. They tore up his future. There didn't seem to be much help on the way. There wasn't a YouTube tutorial installed or a podcast to listen to. There was no Home Depot around with just the right tool available. There's only hard work, soul-hardening work. Maybe this is where you are right now, hard work. But we're modern people. We don't experience this frustration because we don't let it frustrate us. We go researching. A baby has a fever, WebMD. And with, like, there have been times when we had to put like WebMD, like no WebMD, no Google, no internet. Because you, you spin into the spiral of trying to get a grip on something that seems out of your control. If we need to know how to get there, we just fire up Siri, right? Say, Siri, how do I get there? We wouldn't dare 
fall into the spiral of despair that Cain fell into. If we could just avoid it by getting a handbook and it'll show up on our doorstep 48 hours later for free, Amazon Prime. We can solve any problem if we have the right tool. That, that's how we work, that's how we live. We can feel much more equipped if we just had the right accessory. If, you're, if your baby isn't nursing, surely there's a bottle, there's a whole wall of bottles that'll get your baby nursing. We'll be perfectly ready for any encounter, any conversation, because we have a library card or a laptop, right? That's our myth, that we can be saved from hard work, that we can be saved from suffering or uncertainty, that we can be saved from our own human limitations by tools or techniques or technologies. Dietrich Bonhoeffer mused on this in his letters in the 1940s. Imagine if he had lived longer. He says, isn't it true that for a large segment of our people, salvation is expected from nothing other than these things? And the more this longed-for salvation eludes us, the more our plans come to nothing again and again and again, and our life falls more from cliff to cliff or crisis to crisis. The more we cry out for specialists and experts, they must know it, they must be able to do it. This is the most subtle kind of comfort and idol for us. Subtle because there's always the comeback, right? Like, we're not going to be Luddites, right? We're not going to get rid of penicillin or baseball or cars or colleges. But these have such an allure as idols because they demand our worship, they demand our commitment, our trust. We go to them. This writer, Nicholas Carr, who, as far as I can tell, isn't a Christian, he captures this. He says, the greatest of the U.S.'s homegrown religions, greater than Jehovah's Witnesses, greater than the Church of Latter-day Saints, even greater than Scientology, is the religion of technology. He talks about that um, because of the trust, the faith we put into it. There's a really great uh, article that I read that, that taps into this kind of religious nature of our technology. And it, and it was titled the, the Seven Deadly Social Networks, and it followed each one. And it, and it shows the way that, that these impulses and these sins, and, and even the positive things, that they get misdirected and, and malformed so that our, our lust finds a, a, its way in Tinder, our gluttony and stacking pictures of our food and putting a filter on it, our, our greed and LinkedIn as we try to climb some ladder or sloth as we Netflix and chill and wrath. Uh, wrath <laughs> yeah. is only 140 characters away. Uh, our, in, our envy can just be that, that scroll finger as we keep going up, up, up. And then our pride um, in our friends and connections. Instead of bowing our tongues bowing our knees and, and employing our tongues to confess Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, the glory of God the Father. Instead, we align our hearts and our hands toward, instead of aligning our hearts and hands towards the kingdom of God, we, we lean towards, we hope in, these tools and these technologies. 
we drift into the thought, if I only had the right gadget or the gizmo or equipment, then I'd be equipped to be an ideal fill-in-the-blank parent, spouse, student, artist, athlete, etc. But there's another brother in this story. There's always, there always seems to be like two brothers in these stories. There is, of course, Abel. We often forget about Abel because he makes such, a, such an early exit. Abel was the one who cared for the flocks. You're looking at me like, so what? <laughs> the what is that Abel's calling worked itself out first in, in the care, a relational, creationally tuned calling. And second, Abel had really good technology, right? I hadn't really ever thought of sheep as technology in, until relatively recently. First, being a homeowner, um, I came across the, the novel to me concept that in Durham, you can actually hire goats to come to your home and chew up like kudzu and poison ivy and dollarweed and all these things you want. Some of my favorites are Renegoat or the Goat Squad, I think is another uh, website. <laughs> you can employ the, this technology to come to your home. This is some of what I think Abel knew as a shepherd herding a flock. <laughs> the, sometimes the best and most gentle solution is just to hire goats. But the other, the other way I learned this, and I shared with you this trip that I spent uh, in, in the beginning part of the summer, this trip to a farm in English, Indiana, to Gross Family Farm, one of my college friends, where we got to stay on this farm and, and hang out with all these guys and, and kind of learn from this friend who, who practices this kind of maximum permaculture way of farming. Uh, in, in one, you know, obviously he does this for his animals. If he wants, uh, if he wants to plant the, the picture of the, of, of the pig, he was going to plant in that area. So he fenced off this area and about a month later, it was all cleared out, it was all eaten, the ground was muddy and chewed up and ready to plant and really fertile from what those pigs had left behind. But we also, like this kind of mindset really got into my friend pretty deeply. And I, I might be offended if I knew that we were offering him free labor. Because we showed up on this 20 acre farm and, and this man's weekend is always kind of like leisure, recreation, we play games together. And one of those things that, that we do, and this is a holdout from college, is ultimate frisbee. So we show up at this farm in the middle of Amish country outside of Louisville, Kentucky, and he's got this perfect rectangle mode into his farm uh, for us to play ultimate frisbee. And, and the first thought was, I can't believe that you would, you would wreck the farm to let us goofballs like flop around and play frisbee. But the ulterior motive to it is that we, in fact, were tearing up he was employing us as his technology to tear up that plot for his next planning. So I learned from my friend Luke, who like Abel cared for a flock, but he used his sheep to do some of that work for him, some of this chewing up of thorns. Not, not as punishment. These 
These sheep aren't cursed to be engaging with these thorns and thistles. No, that's, that's what sheep are made and called to do. It's chew up thorns, chew up thistles. Just like my friend's farm, Abel's sheep prepared the fields with their work and their presence for flourishing and fertility. Abel the shepherd found a new way to be fruitful and multiply. It was a very clever and graceful kind of way. It's a way that carved out a new vocation, a shepherd. This vocation, unlike a farmer who does backbreaking work, this is the sort of kind of graceful vocation of a shepherd that leaves room for songwriting. Think about another key character in our Hebrew Bible. David, who we spent all summer studying, had time to write all these psalms that we sing in Israel's songbook as a shepherd. This new vocation has, has room for stargazing. At the beginning of Luke's Gospel, we get this picture of these shepherd boys in the field, tracking a star, following the newborn king. We also catch this thread that runs through Scripture to describe how God is treating us and and who we are. When Israel had a bad or non-existent leader, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And finally, Jesus comes along in John 10 as the good shepherd whose sheep will know his voice, who came not to steal, kill, and destroy, but to give abundant life. Jesus also came as that, and then here's the paradox, that the sheep and the shepherd, as, as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, is how he's announced in John's Gospel. And then John, the revelator, stories his cosmic benediction in Revelation 5. Worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. So I want us to consider our calling in the world and in our work and in our lives as sheep and as shepherds. As sheep who even in the toil of our jobs, those moments when it seems like all you're doing is punching in and punching out, that all you're doing is chewing thorns and thistles, that you might be called to hear the shepherd's voice. You might trust that even in these seasons and in this work that he's caring for you, that he's leading you into a life of abundance, and he might be doing that work for others through you. And they might be cultivating an abundant life that is so abundant that it overflows and spills out of the shores of your life into the fields of others. That's the work of the Good Shepherd, grace and abundance, protection and healing. And we might be more conformed to the image of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who took away our sins. The one who is blessed in pouring out his life for others. I want us to consider our calling also as shepherds. Again, not because, not only because we have a good shepherd who's apprenticing us, we do as shepherds and stewards of technology. Each of us have these tools, these social circles, these things that are 
disposal. And we might not run to them in times of difficulty, in times of unease or suffering, but to Jesus. And we might, First Peter says, cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. The shepherd understands. The shepherd understands like philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff, who lost his son, that everyone knows that there's no technology for overcoming death. Death is left for God's overcoming. When we become shepherds, we realize, even in our work and in our home lives, even in the midst of great fear and suffering, that we can rely on Jesus who overcame for us. We even overcame the technologies of sin and death, overcame the technologies of evil and oppression when he was nailed to the cross. Pray that we might humbly and faithfully, as part of our discipleship, wield these tools and techniques. Not as crutches, not as idols, but as tools that we might use them for the sake of the kingdom. As we're called to participate in God's renewal of all things. Even more so, I pray that we might live and move and have our being as God's technology in this world, as sheep. Called by the Good Shepherd into this ministry of grace, flourishing, cultivation, abundance, and renewal. You guys pray with me? Father, lead us on. Good Shepherd, guide us with your rod and your staff as you discipline us and as you care for us, as you keep us away from harm, as you teach us how to cultivate and how to work in this world. Bind up those who are frustrated whose frustration leads them away from you and, and towards other allures and other small g gods. Lead us back unto yourself. Prepare for us a table in the presence of our enemies. Guide us beside still waters and the green pastures. We pray all this in Jesus' name.